This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Well, it's already been a cracking start uh, to the new year in Westminster. This week, I'm joined by a stellar panel to cast an eye over what is happening in government, the opposition, and over in the White House. Joining us, Chris Wilkins, former Director of Strategy and Chief Speechwriter for Theresa May, cast his eye over the reshuffle. Rachel Sylvester, Times columnist, asks what's going on inside the Labour Party. And David Aronovich, also a Times columnist, takes a look at the extraordinary revelations about Donald Trump. As ever, let us know what you think about the podcast. Tweet us at Times Red Box, find us on Facebook or email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. And we begin with Chris Wilkins. Well, the talk is of the Prime Minister's inability to make the changes she wanted in this week's reshuffle. The real story is the lack of ambition that lay behind the plan in the first place. This is a government afflicted by caution, but as a former occupant of Number 10 might have put it, the Prime Minister is at her best when at her boldest. So we recalled this as the lower-ranking ministerial appointments are being made. So who knows? She might pull some enormous rabbit out of a hat yet. But on the basis of what happened to the Cabinet reshuffle, Chris, what did you make of it? Well, as I say, I think the the issue is uh, all of today's um, papers are all about the the fact that she was unable to make the changes that uh, were apparently uh, wanted. Um, but actually, if you look at those, it was really only moving people around in the first place. What it wasn't was uh, it didn't seem to be a plan for a bold uh, change of personnel, demonstrating the breadth of talent in the party. Um, and also uh, really getting to grips with some of the the big issues and the areas of economic and social reform the Prime Minister has always talked about. So I think it was a strange day yesterday. I think it was probably a good day for Jeremy Hunt, um, not such a great day for, for the PM. Um, but the real issue, as I say, is, is what was the thinking behind it in the first place? There didn't seem to be that pl- plan, narrative or thinking um, going into the day. Even if she'd pulled off what she had apparently wanted... Yes. we'd have still said what the hell was all that all about yes exactly so I think the fact that it sort of didn't seem to go quite according to whatever the plan was when your plan is quite sort of uh, unambitious in the first place it sort of makes it all the, all the worse it's better to start out with an ambitious plan if you then don't achieve it people would say okay but I can at least see what you were trying to achieve here um, I think after uh, yesterday it's a bit more difficult to, to say that and from your time, you were in number 10 until the general election, but then went back and helped write the party conference speech last year. Yes. 
how does Downing Street approach a reshuffle? Is it sort of with trepidation, excitement, with a clear vision? What sort of what's gone wrong in this case? Well, certainly all the talk in advance of this one was that there was a clear vision and uh, and a, a big plan that they were working up to, and obviously they had all of uh, the Christmas uh, break, as it were, to to, to plan it. Um, so it should be with um, excitement, really, that you approach something like this. Um, but I think what happens at the same time is you get lots of advice, obviously, from all quarters, and, and what seems to have happened, uh, my, I would guess here, is that you know you have conflicting advice and some people saying, oh, don't do that because you'll upset this person, and you know the most important thing is that we need to get Brexit through, so don't you know annoy all these people. And when you start making calculations like that and you start sort of weighing up the odds, that's when you start making these compromises and that's when things start to go wrong. Rather than starting out by saying, what is the right thing to do here? What do I want to achieve? And then setting on on the course to see that through. And it's that sort of constant sort of calculation that goes on in government, which often leads to things going wrong in, in the first place, I find. Rachel, as an impartial observer of the reshuffle, how many times you laugh your head off as it <laughs> unfolded? Well, it started right at the beginning, didn't it, with the whole Chris Grayling fiasco where he was momentarily, for about 10 seconds, chairman. On the Tory party's own website, then that tweet was deleted and then, you know, another chairman appointed. Meanwhile, the party's own website was crashing, you know, because they hadn't upgraded the software. The whole thing was a sort of metaphor. But then as the day went on, the more serious points came that Theresa May clearly just didn't have the authority to make the changes she wanted and actually as Chris says even before you know even if Jeremy Hunt had agreed to go to the business department or Justine Greening had agreed to go to the Department of Work and Pensions she wasn't even attempting to move or get rid of Boris Johnson who's obviously I th- and I think probably she, Chris may know better than I do but she's pro- she probably herself feels he's deeply unsuited to this role where diplomacy is incredibly important Chris just before Rachel continues where we're about at all about the, what would you what would you say about the prime minister's view of the foreign secretary um, well, uh, she certainly um, uh, likes Foreign Secretary and thinks he's doing overall a, a good job. There have been some incidents, I know, um, uh, that Rachel talked about in her column this week, um, that sort of uh, didn't go quite according to plan. Uh, and there was certainly talk uh, a, a while ago about whether he might be moved. Um, I think that talk didn't last for long. I think he made it clear that um, he, he uh, didn't want to be moved. Um, and uh, uh, and this she is sort was, of mad. The whole point of this week, you know. David, you're <laughs> laughing. Tell us why you're laughing. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is that the Prime Minister has the authority and they get moved whether they like it or not. Um, uh, that's the kind of authority, for instance, an editor of a newspaper traditionally and actually um, uh, works, but a Prime Minister clearly clearly doesn't. I can see that the difficulty... I was thinking when you asked the question about, you know, will she pull a rabbit out of the hat, I think the only thing that could actually make people interested in this, I mean, people more generally, uh, if you're talking about the lower rank, ranks of the Minister, is if she actually did appoint a rabbit... <laughs> a real rabbit, and then people, you know, so the incitatus, etc., and take it out of her actual hat, uh, uh, and so on. But the there base, are the only about the there are only about four dead. ministers, yeah. people out there have ever heard of Gove, yeah. Johnson, uh, conceivably some of them have heard of Phil, Phil Hammond, or you'll say that kind of guy with the glasses who does the budget, etc., uh, and Theresa Is May. So, so the rest of this, so the rest of this only matters. 
Does he not have glasses? I don't think no, he does. I don't know. Oh, well, he? yeah, so there you he go. Mean, he's, he's imprinted in my <laughs> in my mind and memory. That was more my fault than, than, than his. So this matters not from the point of view of any kind of public view that you've been reorganised and so on, that the party's doing something differently, but because you have an internal plan uh, that you're working to with regard to the kind of the, what the government is going to do. Uh, and I have absolutely no idea. But I did think as we... we when uh, Tuesday morning, which is it is Tuesday today as we do this, um, we have our politics we had our politics meeting and I sat as we were talking about uh, Theresa May thinking this is probably how sports reporters talk about Arsene Wenger <laughs> uh, really, it's kind of, uh, 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 you know, every because what they because what they were saying is every time you think she's gone, she wins a game, you know, maybe a, a relatively unimportant game, maybe a quite important game, and, it, uh, and is triumphant again. And everybody says, you know, actually, it's not the time. And then as soon as they lose four two to Nottingham Forest, and this I think this reshuffle was a four two loss to Nottingham Forest, essentially, wasn't it, uh, Chris? Um, then in that case, it's time for her to go again. But the same problem cops up every single time if it's. It's time for her to go, then who on earth is it time to have in there who's going to do something significant that's different? And so what I kind of perceive is just stasis. They're stuck. It's more like that um, Stoke manager, isn't it, who puts up his B division team hoping to save the A division for the better match. Later. And then the one who was sacked this <laughs> week. And then he gets sacked. So, I mean, I think... I'm not sure she's a safe... Which football manager she most like? <laughs> Gosh, um, I just see what David means about the Arts of Wenger example. I think the, the point about this is that the Prime Minister doesn't uh, always, I think, appreciate what a position she is actually in. Because, I mean, as David says, firstly, there isn't a sort of obvious alternative but actually also she had a very good end to the year last year she did deliver the next progress uh, next phase in the the brexit talks um the budget was uh, seen as success actually it was a strong end to the year and that was the point really of yesterday was that with that strength now is the time to really actually seize the agenda and do the thing you want to do and of course some good was done yesterday let's not overlook that i think you know, damien hines uh, is is an excellent appointment as education secretary uh, and i think we'll do uh, a really good job he's very highly rated um, some of the other changes, some of the changes that Conservative HQ uh, were, I think, very positive, um, very Chris, strong. Can I just interrupt you for but, a to ask you a question? When you say he's going to do a good job, and we hear this continuously, what's he going to do a good job doing that wasn't being done before? I, you say it's the moment for her to kind of seize the opportunity, get the thing done that she wants to do. What is that thing in education, for example, that Justine Greening wasn't doing, that this Damien chap, they're all called Damien as far as I can see, this <laughs> Damien chap, she loves Damien's, um, uh, will do. I think the um, it's unfortunate to lose Justine from the government, but the view of Justine at the Department of Education was that there was no clear sense of what she wanted to achieve there, but by which was maintaining the focus on driving up school standards, which is something that the Conservative government uh, regards a success story over the past few years and need to keep up the momentum on that. There's a sense that that had stalled. If um, Damon goes in and refocuses the department uh, and the government on that, I think that's one thing. School standards, which is really important, really important to parents, comes across all the time when you do research. The other thing that comes across when you do uh, opinion research, particularly as we face up to Brexit, is the skills agenda. Um, uh, and re delivering real parity between technical education and academic um, and that's something that I know uh, Damon Hines is particularly uh, keen on and has, has talked a lot about in the past and done a lot on um, so I think those are the two things and there was just a sense I think from the Department of Education that there wasn't that sort of relentless focus on that particular agenda but My, my problem required. is sort of slightly more generally across Whitehall you don't really sense why Theresa May wants to be Prime Minister so she's 
put the word social care into Jeremy Hunt's job at the Department for Health, but actually, what does she want to do to solve this real crisis in social care and actually health funding? The two are totally linked. But she doesn't seem to have a... She had a sort of ridiculous idea, which was dubbed the dementia tax, <laughs> completely ill thought through at the election. Mm. And now it, she hasn't got any ideas. And it's the same with housing. She's put housing into the title of the Department for Local Government and Communities or the other way around. But but actually, what's she going to do to get houses built? And same with education. I don't... Apart from she had a silly grammar school policy. <laughs> but what's her, what's her blueprint for reform on the NHS schools... Um, you know, crime, immigration and ultimately Brexit. They still haven't got a policy on where they want Britain to be when, when we leave the EU. I think, you know, if you go back to right from the first day in number 10 and for the first year or so, there were a lot of big ideas there that were put out and we went through the process then of having the sort of green papers and then white papers and it was sort of uh, a sort of proper government process of developing policy at that, at that time. Um, but, I mean, I agree with you, Rachel, there's definitely been a, a difficulty in seeing those ideas through. And of course, yes, one of the big ideas was the social care policy, which which got put out there and, and sort of rejected. So, um, I think that's what's created a little bit of this sense of caution that's going on now. But actually, the original <coughs> thinker was quite big and bold. And my go back to my original point, the Prime Minister is is a bold thinker. I've seen her in situations where she's really taken on big things. I'm right back looking 15 years ago when the Conservative Party needs to modernise. She was the person that went out there and said that and took that on. But she's but great in those situations. She needs to get back to being that person. Chris, the, Chris, the, the counter-argument is that she actually doesn't believe in anything. Nick Timothy was very good at giving her ideas that she didn't disagree with, but wasn't thinking up big thoughts herself. She didn't have. She doesn't have a big driving passion. Nick Timothy thought all of his big thoughts, which got a thumbs down from the electorate last year. And there is still the suspicion now that Nick Timothy is still whispering in her ear and certainly people around Justin Greening thinks that he's the main reason that she's got the sack. Do you think that's right? Um, I've no sense at all that, that Nick is doing that. Um, so I can't particularly comment on that. I don't, I don't yeah. know that that's the case. Um, does she and, really and believe in anything? Um, is she not just a sort of manager who plods through some ideas that somebody else has come up with? I mean, she, she, she does believe in things. She's definitely somebody who thinks um, that government should be consultative and she wanted this to turn to cabinet government and that was very much the way that she approached it. Um, but when I spoke to her before uh, the ill-fated party conference speech last year and said, you know, what, what's the real thing here that, that you would like to communicate and that, that really drives you? Um, she said that it's really about tackling injustice uh, and it's about giving a voice to people who feel that they don't have uh, a voice uh, in the political system. And she pointed to the things that she'd done in the past, particularly when you think of things at the, at the Home Office when she took on the issues around stop and search, when she set up uh, an investigation into uh, allegations of child sexual abuse, which had been ignored for years. And nobody had done anything about she did that. She was the person that delivered the inquiry into Hillsborough and got justice for people there had been ignored for years she did that big bold things now they're they're sort of not your your sort of classic um political things necessarily um but these are the things that actually drive her and she has a deep sense uh that government should work for people who don't have a say in government and it should be about tackling injustice and that was what she spoke about on the steps number 10 on day one it's what her agenda was always about and she really i think to be authentic needs to get back to a lot of that kind of thing do you think she can? I mean, you talk about being afflicted by caution. Once you're trapped in this caution, again, it, like, even modest changes yesterday didn't go very well. That's only going to 
sure, build sure. more caution in. Uh, I mean, it, it is very easy in governments to get sort of uh, trapped in that sort of mentality. Um, uh, and of course, the big bold thing she did last year was call an election, and that didn't go very well. So I entirely understand <laughs> it. I entirely understand why you might might take the approach you're now taking. But um, I, I think the problem is, as we all know, that if you don't set the agenda in politics, it gets set for you. Um, and she does have things that she wants to achieve. Um, she uh, has a clear sense. She does have actually a clear sense of why she wants to be prime minister. Um, she's, you know, she has to deal with Brexit. Obviously, it's not the thing she would probably have chosen to do. Um, but there are these other things to do. She can get back to it. Um, but need to stop, I think, calculating the odds all the time and just think, what's the right thing to do and get on and do it. Just very quickly before we move on to all three of you, I'll start with you, David. Do you think yesterday or the the reshuffle? has hastened her departure from number 10? Well, I ask that question because I think it has. I think it, it's fundamentally changed. There's now a whole load of people around the Cabinet table who just think, I've got more say over my job than you have. In that case, you think 100% more about it than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, your, and your very definite thought has crowded out my complete lack of definite thought. Rachel? I think so too. And also today, with the moving of the lower ministerial ranks, it sounds as you'll have quite a few cross former ministers back on the back benches who will make her parliamentary job more difficult so yes the ranks of the mutineers are swelling what about you Um, I don't particularly see that it's changed that I I still don't think there's a sort of uh, obvious alternatives there Uh, and I still think as I said earlier that she she is in a stronger position than sometimes she thinks she is Um, so I don't think it's particularly changed the odds on that and can she lead the party into 2020 yes she can or whenever it comes yes very good right let's move on Um, I'm sure we'll come back to Theresa May's abilities in future weeks but let's move on and look at the opposition this is Rachel Sylvester The hard left is seizing control of the Labour Party and its institutions. It already has the leadership, most of the shadow cabinet, and this week it will solidify its power in the ruling National Executive Committee. It looks like a disaster for the moderates, but it could actually be a blessing in disguise. And this is one of these stories, Rachel, where it sort of bubbles away in the background and we sort of forget about it until the government goes quiet for a bit and everybody focuses on the Labour Party. But this gradual shift behind the scenes of the Labour Party has been going on for some time now but at some point it will break Mm. to the surface we think it's the long march through the institutions as I think Gramps would put it (laughs) and it's uh, this week it's the fact that John Lansman and two other who's the founder of Momentum the sort of Corbynista pressure group and two other left wingers are uh, expected to be elected to the NEC Um, uh, and that really solidifies the left's power in the committee that changes the rules for the governance of the party so things like leadership elections conference votes the things that seem incredibly boring and technocratic but actually matter a lot Uh, and across the councils they're winning over council seats etc and I think what's interesting is for the moderates in the party who actually make up a majority of the parliamentary party most of the MPs actually don't agree with the Corbyn agenda and the momentum agenda for them in a way this is a rather clarifying moment because they they've found themselves caught in this party that actually they're no longer really part of it's changed so dramatically it's no longer the party that was led by Kinnock or Blair um, or Gordon Brown actually or Ed Miliband it's changed and morphed into something else it's moved away from the centre ground and from those moderate MPs um, and I think this could, if they have the courage, be a moment that forces them to acknowledge that and face up to that and either break away as a sort of separate, you know, um, moderate Labour Party within the Commons or even form a new centrist party and join with other um, people from the Liberal Democrats and moderate Tories. And I think this could be a trigger 
maybe this is wishful thinking, but um, for a reshaping of politics that is actually overdue. I think there's this huge gap in the market in the centre of politics. Well, if, both, um, if both main parties are in the position of saying, well, we can't get rid of the leader, Labour say that because Corbyn's got the membership and the yeah. Tories, there is no alternative. Well, yeah. You know, maybe an alternative delivers itself. Yeah, um, David, why do you think that the hard left are going to the trouble of all this in the Labour Party, given that Corbyn's position is so strong? He's won two leadership elections. All the membership, this huge new membership, is behind him. So his position is strong in the sense that he is the leader, but his position wasn't strong in the sense that he could therefore dictate what Labour's policy was going to be mm. and what they were going to do, because what he'd have, effectively, was a whole series of minister, um, shadow ministers and spokespeople, etc., disagreeing with him or undermining effectively what he was going to say. I mean, that, of course, is where he knows what he's going to say. The thing, that's, I think, to remember about Jeremy Corbyn is that he actually has worked out... The on very, very few things, and most of them are international, uh, and most of those aren't that worked out either, actually, when you come, you come right down to it. So, for instance, the incredible slowness of Labour responding anyway to the Iranian protest is a sign of just how, um, uh, how they face in different kind of directions because of the old kind of left-wing hangover. Um, so what they want to do is they want to get into the position whereby the Labour Party actually is theirs, which the leadership alone doesn't kind of guarantee it. Now, one, one interesting thing is whether or or not, if you get somebody like John Landsman, who's an old kind of the old kind of Benite's been there, kind of spidering away for years, whether it actually provides a, if you like, another centre of power. I mean, does the NEC become a centre of Labour policy power, which is separate from that in the shadow cabinet and in Parliament? Um, and that actually has the ability to kind of cut up in all ways. We talk about Corbynistas, but actually only a few of them are, are what we might call ideological Corbynistas. A whole lot of them kind of hang around out of sentiment and a feeling that things maybe could be very much better or anti-Toryism or uh, reaction to the old days of uh, Blair and Brown and so on. But they aren't actually very developed. If you listen to somebody like Clive Lewis actually talk, he could end up on, the, on one of the several sides of a particular argument, depending on which way it goes. So... I'm not sure about this clarifying moment, Rachel. I think the thing is that they're all... They're, most of the, a lot of these people are not very brave. And they will find places of refuge within the existing structure where they can hide and pretend that actually, if they just hold on, things will go their way or things... Uh, I'd love this moment of clarification. And I know that there are, you know, there are other people taking for it. But I seriously wonder whether or not that's going to happen. I suppose it depends if you get a series of deselections or deselection attempts of MPs in their constituencies where that's happening, you're getting local uh, momentum groups taking over in certain areas. Um, it just depends that that in, in itself is a risk for the Corbyn uh, left-wingers because they, they might lose or they might end up with that MP standing as an independent or whatever in the seat. And Chris, from a Tory perspective, mm. did the... In the run-up, you know, before the election uh, last year, did the Tories underestimate the Labour Party? They just think that Jeremy Corbyn was this sort of crumpled mess in a suit, and it, you know. Yeah, I think I think to a large extent that that's true. Um, I think you know, it was never it, it wasn't sort of complacency as such, but it was the, the calculations we sort of made about what would happen once we called the election um, didn't come to fruition. We we felt uh, it wasn't so much Corbyn actually, but we felt that the Labour Party wouldn't be able to unify quickly to, in order to put on a, an effective campaign. Now, 
I've said before, to their credit, actually, uh, that didn't happen um, for, for the sort of seven-week period of the election campaign. The Labour Party really did sort of come together. Now, it's interesting reading um, some of the books that have been published about that period now, and you realise that actually, in many ways, the Labour campaign was as divided as the Conservative one, and there were sort of two different campaigns going on, and there was this sort of official party one and then the, the Corbyn one, uh, etc. But they managed to hold it together, I think, slightly better than, than we did. Um, but they certainly gave that impression of, of unity for a period, at least. Um, so it wasn't um, so much underestimation of him, him as such, but their ability uh, and their willingness to unite for that period of time. And what the Tories wouldn't do for half a million members. I mean, it's one of the, the big things from the yeah. reshuffle is the new team going into CCHQ. The Labour Party have got a problem in it. They've got 500,000 members. Can you imagine how buggered the Tories would be if they had half a million members? <laughs> Can you think about who those people would be? Well, at the moment. I mean, you know, what, what, what could the Tory party do about that, do you think? Can you, because, because actually, although everybody talks about social media and how much better the Tories need to get back at, at Twitter, which clearly they do when they <laughs> announce the wrong person in jobs. Yes. But the thing, the overwhelming thing that comes from all the books about the general election is the momentum got people out knocking on doors and knocking on doors they One didn't One month before. earlier, they hadn't during the council elections. It's a really understated phenomenon, this. So what they, get, they did was they got the turnout and they got also the youth turnout, which differential youth turnout from, say, the referendum and previous elections, um, which, will ha- which they obviously showed that on... If you, if you have a moment and you say mobilise for that moment, then they could mobilise for it. And they did actually give a kind of impression of unity mm. insofar as people who mm. are not political experts are looking at impressions of unity... Because, I mean, one of the things, you know, here we are, we're doing the kind of red box podcast and so on. The assumption that we're going to be making is that the people who are listening are relatively interested in politics. But as we've said often here before, most people are not sitting out there with our kind of level of of (laughs) pouring over it and seeing who's different from this and who's doing that and so on. I mean, one of the things that happened in the election, for instance, that should never have happened was the Labour moderates signed up to a position, let's say, on tuition fees, which they all knew was unsustainable. They all knew it. They'd never supported it. They thought it was wrong. But they thought that the scale of the defeat was probably going to be so big that that would get dumped along its longest suicide note in history, Mark II, etc. That would all get dumped with that and they could go return to the status quo ante. Instead, the 40% got by Corbyn has cemented in place one of the most wasteful policies in terms of education spending, etc., in our lifetime. And they have to pretend to like it. They're all smiling, that kind of rictus grin of, yeah, we're going to go and do this. Wait until... I mean, you know, in a sense, part of you just wants them to win an election. So they have... We have a problem with the NHS over here. You know, let's say it's 11 billion quid and we have 11 billion quid of tuition fees over here. Now we're going to go into Cabinet and we're going to say, let's do the tuition fees thing. But in the end, Chris, Mm -hmm. the Labour Party knew that if you're going into an election, you put things in a manifesto that people might like. (laughs) <laughs> rather than a list of things that they don't like. Yes, I mean, definitely an insight we'll take into the next election. <laughs> um, th- th- that's absolutely right. I think the, the interesting thing, and come back to your, your question, Matt, about momentum, what we can sort of learn from them, um, is that, you know, this idea of building a movement and, uh, and how people are really engaging with politics now is it's based on values, it's based on feelings, it's based on how people feel about the thing they're being offered. So um, it's not a transaction anymore. It's about actually mobilising the sentiment that's there. And what I think the Labour Party did very successfully, and yes, absolutely, their, their manifesto was sort of sort of full of nonsense in, in some ways, but they spoke to people's values and they got credit for 
talking about the things people wanted to talk about. And what we did was went into uh, the election, I think, with a, an old-fashioned view, in my, in, in my view, which says that basically if you own the debate, then you win. And actually people said, no, we don't want to talk about what you want to talk about. We want to talk about these things here. Jeremy Corbyn's doing that. Now, actually, we might not agree with his solutions. We might not think they are the most sensible policies. But he's talking about these things and we're going to reward him for that. And that's what builds the movement. And that's what I think we, we lost. But also there was a sense of idealism and optimism it, yes, among the exactly, Labour campaign, exactly. whereas the Tories was all yes. about this costs this, this is negative, this is Completely. fear, this is down, this, that and the other. But the problem with the Labour reality now is a lot of the momentum members and the younger idealistic people who signed up for Labour and followed Jeremy Corbyn actually don't agree with him fundamentally on Europe. And he's basically yeah. got this Labour Party into a sort of fudged position. He himself privately, a lot of Labour MPs think is anti the EU, you know, um, pro-Brexit possibly even. But now he's ending up leaving this movement which is very pro-European, the sort of Glastonbury crowd. <laughs> so there's a mismatch which is something's going to have to give. Yeah. And that's actually a thing yeah. that affects the country. And we talk all the time about the splits in the Tory party on on Brexit, the B word, um, but they're just as bad in the in yeah, the Labour sorry, Party. Matt, <laughs> get your buzzer out. In a moment, David Ivanovich on Donald Trump. We'll be back after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Times Red Box podcast. This is David Ivanovich. Yeah, who's afraid of Michael Wolff? Just imagine that one hundredth of what we know about Trump was made known about a President Hillary. The MSM, mainstream media, for those of you not in the loop, and liberal press would have crucified her as well as all the right-wing outlets. Think about the emails. But on Trump, right-wingers do contortions to try and defend him in some way or another. It's part of what you might call the great asymmetry. You don't really think that Hillary Clinton goes to bed eating burgers and watching three tellies at six o'clock in the evening, do you? No, I don't. <laughs> I, uh, what I thought was, I thought for a long time, was given the row that there was about Hillary's 
really unimportant email, relatively unimportant email server that was attached to it, not just by the right-wing and more conspiracist uh, uh, Republican press, but also by what you might call the mainstream press, New York Times and so on. One of the things that is for sure is that if one-tenth of what's been said about Trump and has been true about Trump or that Trump has done since the election had been done by a President Hillary Clinton, then in that case she would have been absolutely crucified by both sides. Mm. by both sides. The York Times would have been out together as being a useless president and of course the right wing Fox News and so on would have been out together. But because it's Trump the right wingers don't come out against him. They find methods and mechanisms for defending him, saying, ah, yeah, but don't look there, look at this. Um, uh, People are getting their knickers in a twist. They're actually alienating the very people who supported Trump by going on about Trump's deficiencies in this regard. They shouldn't be talking about whether or not he's mentally capable of being president because it just alienates people uh, and so on. And that's when they're not saying, yeah, in fact, don't look at any of that. Look at the incredible economic statistics, which actually are in the middle range of the economic statistics that were achieved during the Obama years, but we won't mention that. <laughs> um, and that's what I mean by the greater sim- asymmetry. And it's not the first time that I've, uh, I've noticed it, which is the problem for liberals is, and particularly the liberals and the centre-left, is that if our own uh, uh, do something bad, we lamb into them as much as if they were right-wingers. But the right-wing, they don't return the compliment they don't do it. I think it's something more complicated, isn't it? It's not really about left or right. It's that I think as someone said during the Trump presidential campaign, it's bringing fact checkers to a culture war. And actually, the Trump victory was it's back to what Chris was yeah, saying about exactly. emotion. It was really based on feelings and anger and emotion rather than a rational thing. And the sort of perhaps. I don't know whether it's a media or a liberal thing, but applying the sort of standards of rational mm. assessment isn't what people are doing with Trump or his supporters anyway. I went to see last night the National Theatre, the uh, play Network, and there's the network presenter who becomes this sort of angry prophet in the wilderness shouting, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to be quiet or whatever it is. Um, And there's something of that, it really resonated with Trump, that there's a thing of... It almost doesn't matter what he does or what he says at some level. Obviously it does in the real world, but at some level politically it doesn't matter because his whole... His victory was based on emotion and anger rather than reason. I think exactly. I think really in many ways one of the most interesting things about politics over the past sort of 18 months or so is the utter failure of um, whatever you'd call them, maybe liberal centrists or however you would term them, to really get their act together and understand how to respond to the trends that have been going on in politics. If you look at it in in this country, um, you know, the the response to Brexit from those people who who don't support it, they've completely failed to find a unified position and to really find it. an an argument or a way through it Uh, and as you say Rachel going back at things like that which is fundamentally an emotional thing with rational argument which is what the the Remain campaign tried to do all this project fear Mm. nonsense um, you know that's a a failed and both here and in the States I think the people on that side of the argument just haven't found at all any unity or or unifying proposition do you know what I have had it with this narrative now I have officially had it with this narrative. <laughs> and this is sorry for are you saying it's not true? Are you saying no, 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 I, I, it, it just no, it just doesn't get you anywhere. 
it just doesn't get you anywhere in the end. I mean, what were they supposed to do? What is this unified, liberal, anti-Brexit narrative supposed to consist of in a situation where you've lost a, a referendum? Was there supposed to be some kind of, I don't know, some organisational central party led by the Mekon uh, who was going to say, right, OK, for us now to achieve what we want to achieve, we're going to have to dig down into the minds of one... We're going to have to convert one and a half million people... It's, it, it's not like that. And the point, mm. that I'm, the, the point that I'm making, I mean, you're right to say it is a terrific problem for people who believe that their arguments rest on the basis of what is practical and what is good, uh, set up against a, a series of moral uh, values, set against people who say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take mm. it anymore. Uh, so the question that emerges from all this is, should liberals now say, I'm as mad as hell and I won't take it anymore? Well, the second they do, then people say, you see, you're alien those people who voted for Trump and it is amazing that you can't vote for Brexit so you can't do that either you're completely stymied but you can have some optimism and emotion in a campaign so the I mean take the Brexit campaign which we probably know better than the Trump campaign that was that was not fought on the Remain side with any emotion enthusiasm optimism at all it was all facts and figures and fear absolutely and the same with the Tory campaign I mean I know I think Chris you were arguing during the Tory campaign, not for that, <laughs> it's, according it's, to books <laughs> recently. But indeed, I mean, it's, it's about it's about empathy, though, isn't it? So I went to see um, Hillary Clinton talk when she came over to do her, her book mm. tour, uh, and she spoke at the festival hall, and it was a, a very interesting talk. Um, but what was noticeable was the complete lack of any empathy sh she had um, for the people that she'd not convinced to vote for her, mm. uh, and her campaign was the same. So um, is that what the problem? How is it that somebody like Trump wins? without having any empathy whatsoever for people who don't vote for him. In fact, quite the opposite. He, he has empathy he has for the people who vote for him. Yeah, I'm sure Hillary has empathy for people who vote for her too. Well, not necessarily. Um, <laughs> the most striking thing, because I saw it at Cheltenham, which I think was the night before, the night after when she was in London, and, and actually the most striking thing was basically everybody else's fault. It, precisely. Um, there was no self-affection. Yeah. Maybe it was just me. Maybe it was me, yeah. f former first lady, been around for a long time, lacking some of the skills that you currently need in the world and maybe that was you know maybe that played a part and i well. don't think it's true that the center or the center left or center right can't do empathy and look at oprah winfrey's speech this week was it the golden globes, golden globes yeah. which was extraordinary people were in tears watching that that was a statement of liberal values equality and i don't think it was only liberals who would have found that appealing if you were a young black kid or young white kid in a in a sort of depressed area that would have been inspirational to you just as much as the sort of happy clappy people in their ball gowns at the dinner well that's exactly i i, I said after the uh, trump uh, election that if there was ever going to be a woman president of the united states based on the current series of assumptions it would have to be oprah winfrey or kim kardashian because that's I think the you said that even on, on a former podcast yeah i think i think i probably did and lo and behold that's what we're talking about essentially never mind whether or not anybody has the faintest idea how to run anything no matter the ideas how things should be done what you've got to show is that you really bloody well care or you're really bloody angry and the rest of it can go and sort itself out because that's what it is that we need well, well you need both you do need both 
Okay, well, find me. Okay, you can well, I mean, find moment. me someone who's got both. At the Jamie moment, competence or empathy, we take that from the one of those from the, <laughs> government, from the current government. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time. It's um, been an extra long um, podcast, but it's been particularly uh, interesting. So, thank you to the panel. As ever, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device. Sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But my thanks to David, Rachel, and Chris. And for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.